And I knew In the crystalline knowledge of you Drove me through the mountain Through the crystal like a clear water fountain Drove me like a magnet To the sea Let's start first. Okay. <laughs> this is in the can. This is in the can. We are your hosts. I'm Sarah. I'm Parker. And tonight we're going to be talking about the 1998 classic Practical Magic. And what a classic. Cult classic. Film it is. Indeed. Cult classic. A thousand percent. Uh, PG-13 rating on there. No animals are hurt during the film. Um, I'm Well, actually, I take that back, actually. There is a pigeon scene or a dove scene, so look out for that one. I did forget about that. Did they actually harm the dove in that scene? No, no. Okay, it was like a proper. In fact, that's actually one of the very few critiques that witches have about that movie. So, like, full disclosure, the film didn't do well when it was first released. It flopped. And there's a lot of reasons behind that, but it just didn't do well. Critics actually hate this film. They think that it's uh, convoluted. Um, that the storyline doesn't make sense, uh, that the tonality is very odd. Um, they thought it was marketed as a horror movie, as a ghost movie, and as a comedy. But if you talk to anyone else within our age group, specifically, I feel like, yeah, like it is a beloved film. It's would, perfect. I was going to say, it's shocking to me hearing that about the critics because... Oh, but they were all men at that time. And I think that that is a huge part because this film is different than a lot of other films that were being made at that time. And literally, the men are not important in it at all. They're all side characters. And I'm not saying that, that, that male critics don't like movies about women. I'm just saying this film was solely, in my opinion, about the relationships between these women... More than it was anything else. Well, let me tell you one critic who loved the film. Who? Seven-year-old Sarah Downing. (laughs) (laughs) Because growing up, this was... I'm I'm very excited for this episode. Growing up, this was my favorite movie. Dude, I love this movie. It was... I... I actually talked to my mom about it. Um, I said, hey, you know, we're, we're doing Practical Magic on the show. And I asked her, do you remember anything about me in this movie when I was a kid? And she said, Sarah, we watch this movie all the time. This is the only <laughs> movie you wanted to watch. And speaking of soundtracks, which we're going to get into in a little bit, I rem- have a very specific memory of going to Sam Goody with my mother in the mall <laughs> in Harlingen, Texas. And um, buying this soundtrack. And this was all I wanted to listen to. My mom said we were a big road trip family. So we were always on the road. Um, She said every road trip I would bring the CD and beg for my family to play the Practical Magic CD. Um, Yeah, it was just all I ever wanted to watch. And it, it was like my favorite movie, my favorite soundtrack. So it's shocking to me. That these critics didn't like it because I have always loved this movie. And I guess I I can kind of understand what they're saying about the tonality because as I was watching this movie with fresh eyes yesterday, um, I thought Sally's character's tone changes in kind of a weird way. So I can kind of see that, but I don't care. This movie will always hold such a special place in my heart and I would just recommend 
people just any anyone out there have yourself a Friday night in with your best friends, make margaritas, and watch Practical Magic. A thousand percent. There is a reason for the tonality being off. Um, before I get too far into that, I do want to say very widely received well by witches and millennials. And the reason is for millennials, not the witches. Um, I think witches were just like excited to see a movie about witchcraft where... It was a plot device, but it wasn't the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it. It really was so much about. I mean, it it followed a lot of the rules of magic. What you put out is what you got. You know, there's mm-hmm. consequences, things like that. And I thought that was really interesting. The tonality is really different because it was intended to be a totally different movie. Mm-hmm. Um, somewhere out there, which will never be released, is a different cut, and the different cut is super dark. It had a totally different soundtrack. Um, it was just a different feel, and it didn't do very well with the tester audience. So last minute, they totally scrapped that soundtrack and replaced it with a different soundtrack, and they recut the film. So I think that there are pieces that are missing that kind of explain why people change mm-hmm. so often throughout it. Um, you saying that reminds me of the, the whole... Um in the TV show Community, there's mm-hmm. the whole episode where they have the darkest timeline, and it becomes the theme in the show. So I imagine the darkest timeline is this alternate um, practical magic cut and soundtrack. And we are living in we are living in the best timeline, the most optimistic timeline. Yeah. But out there exists a darker timeline. A darker timeline that has the darker practical magic soundtrack. It it was supposed to be a much darker ghost story. Hmm. And and so when WB um, when it was getting optioned to them, I guess, or going through the process rather i think it was past optioning um they were just like yeah i don't like it Nuh-uh, too dark and so they just had to redo everything last minute interesting because i've read that's happened with a couple of things with them too they did the same thing with the batman on when they went to do the second one that was supposed to have tim burton wb was like we want to make all these changes and he was like fuck that yeah you know they do that a lot Do you want to talk a little bit about the synopsis of the movie? I do. Um, Before I get into that really quick, I want to talk about uh, just a couple of things. So I was saying that there's a totally different director's cut. Um, For full disclosure, the director is Griffin Dune. Uh, He's (laughs) responsible for making Joe's Apartment, which was the most hilarious. Joe's Apartment. If you do not know this film, this is about a grown adult man who has thousands of roach friends. Wow. So we're going to watch that at some point. Okay, it's on the list. That it's on the list. list. I won't tell anymore because I'm sure we'll have an episode of Surprise that. me. So, um, but yeah, for context, that's something that he made. Among some other films that are probably regarded as, as good. As good regarded as good? <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, real quick, we've got Sandy Bullock in it. She plays Sally. Nicole Kidman plays Jillian. They're both sisters. Uh, this movie is basically mostly about the relationship of these two sisters and the curse on their family without giving out too much. There are going to be spoilers going forward, so I'm just going to let you know. If you have not seen this film and it is integral to you to not know certain things about it, I, I don't know, close your ears every once in a while. Take a pause. Take a pause. Pause the show. Watch the movie. Yeah. Come back. Come back to us. Yeah. Yeah, sounds good. Um, really amazing actors in this. There is... Uh, Goran Viznik? Is that how you say his name? Oh, the guy from ER? 
Yeah. Jimmy Angelo. That's who he ends he's, up playing. I mean, he's pretty hot. Um, he's so hot. I, all the, the men in this movie are so hot, in my uh, opinion. A little bit of a disagree there, but we'll get into it. Okay, okay. Aiden Quinn. I personally am in love with this actor. I don't want to hear shit about it. If you have something mean to say, he was so good in Benny and June and Desperately Seeking Susan. I may be basing all of my love off of those two. Pro- I mean, he's really great in this movie, too, and I think I just kind of went into it loving him. But just saying, he's great. Uh, in addition, Diane Weist, amazing, mm-hmm. incredible, beautiful. Stalker Channing almost wasn't in the film. They had actually picked somebody else, and then she ended up taking it. Shocking to me because she is such a standout star oh my in this God. movie. And you would think that she and Diane uh, Weist were cast in tandem because yes. they have such... First of all, all of the actors in this film have incredible chemistry. Mm-hmm. It is very good. Mm-hmm. Just really great. And a star-studded cast, in my opinion, including yeah. the extras. When you have the, the housewives that show up, all of those character actors are in so many other films. Like, um, oh man, what is her name? Uh, Chloe Webb and Martin Dale. When you see them on film, you're going to know exactly who they are because they were just really big in 90s films, in my opinion. Yeah. Also, even the young actresses um, Mm -hmm. who play... So, young Sally is played by Camilla Bell. And then... I was going to tell you that. um, Did you know that she's also the little girl in uh, The Lost World, Jurassic Park, at the beginning with that yacht scene? Oh, no. I didn't know that. That's her. Which, like, those movies, I know that they're right next to each other in time, but for me, it's not like that. Yeah. And I don't know why. Unfortunately, um, when I think of... Oh, actually, of, I do know exactly why. When I think of Camilla Bell, unfortunately, I just think about the time that Taylor Swift basically slut-shamed her in a song because Camilla Bell started dating Joe Jonas after Taylor Swift, and then Taylor Swift wrote some song about how he was with some actress who's better known for what she does on the mattress. <gasps> Very rude. See, I don't know any of this hot Very rude. That is very rude. Very rude. rude. And then Evan Rachel Wood Uh is um, Kylie. Kylie, She's a baby in this. Yeah. She is a baby. Also has uh, Mark Furestein. I don't know if I said his name right. He plays Michael. Um, I'm in love with him. He looks like an aging hardcore dude. Mm -hmm. I'm all about it. We'll get into it. We'll get into it. We'll get into it. Um, So, God, I love him. Okay, uh, so yeah, just, um, yeah, and actually, you know, earlier I said that it was uh, Griffin Dune did a darker cut. I think it was actually Akiva Goldman who was the big force behind that. He was the co-writer on it because he was the one who kept that that cut, <clears throat> actually, and then he ended up, he said he hadn't been able to find it. Um, to go back to something earlier that we were talking about, uh, the popularity of this film, Akiva later talks about how um, his daughter and her friends were so stoked about the film years later. And that's like how he found out it was popular because it it didn't make as much as it cost to make. So it was kind of seen as a disappointment. And it came out in October, I think, or in the fall or something like that, which is just Mm -hmm. like not a great time for movie releases at that time. Um, but a big reason that this movie is so popular is because it was on TV and cable repeatedly. And that is really interesting to me. I kind of love those movies that 
didn't make it in the world, but they made it onto television. Mm-hmm. And so you got to see these weird things. And then when you think about them as an adult, they're like a fever dream until you find that film and you're just like, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. And, oh, stuff. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting right. what you tell me about the, the darker um, cut of it because um, so I read the book last year. Um, the Practical Magic. It's called Practical Magic by Alice Hoffman. Um, the movie is based on... It's really not a dark book. I'm so, wondering the movie's not very much like the book, too. The, the, it's very different. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want me to go into talking about the book versus movie right now? Oh, yeah, yeah. F- feel free. I would sure. also like to say they've tried several tri- times to make projects out of this. They tried to do... Um, a prequel at one point. Well, they tried re- to do a show on ABC, and everything has fallen through, including the mm-hmm. HBO one that was set for 2019. But now it looks like other projects are going to get made. That's interesting because Alice Hoffman has written other books in the Practical Magic universe. Yes, there's um, a so prequel there's, with the aunts telling yeah, that, their story. I, yeah, I've read like half of that one. I haven't finished it. I, I didn't finish it. Okay. Um, but... So the Practical Magic book versus movie, um, they're pretty different, and they're kind of hard to compare. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it was just source material for this film. I mean, there's... I mean, I, not, not in a, a degrading way to the book. Yeah. I just mean, it feels like that movie, that, that script runs outside of the books yeah so universe if that makes sense yeah i would say that the that they're 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 different they're hard to compare because they're almost totally different stories um in the book the aunts have far less of a role they're kind of hardly in the picture mm-hmm. um the book is really about uh, the relationship between the sisters sally and jillian but it's also really heavily with the relationships between sally and her children kylie and antonia mm-hmm. um which in the book they're teenagers they're not children um so they're coming of age um the the thing that's the same is that jillian is this character that wants to get out of town sally is a character who wants to move away from the witchcraft um, she actually moves away from the town that her family's from in the book. Oh, interesting. Yeah, she does not live with the aunts. She lives in a totally different town, has a totally different life, which I think they touch on in the movie, but it's more dramatic in the book. Um, well, in the movie, it's so important that she became normal in that town, that Michael established normalcy. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I don't. I don't remember exactly. I might want to look this up or we cut it. But the whole thing about the men being cursed is not a thing in the book. That's really interesting. The thing is, is the death beetle even a thing? Not that I remember. And the death beetle is pretty cool. Uh, the things that are the same are that, like, Sally's first husband does die and she goes into a very deep depression. Okay. That's the same. Um, Jillian, Jillian's lover, abusive lover... I don't remember his name's Jimmy in the book, but he, she does, he does die, but the the whole, the whole way that goes down is differently in the books. uh, Jillian over time has been giving him nightshade, not Belladonna, but nightshade over a period of time. And she believes that it built up in his system so much that he died from it. Sally, you know, has no idea about Jimmy. 
um, or whatever his name is in the book. Um, and, the, and that's why the cop in the book does come around because he's questioning Jillian about the death of Jimmy, but then it ultimately gets dropped somewhere that's interesting. to the movie. You um, know, they rewrote the character. They do, and they do bury him in the lawn. Sorry, they do bury him in the lawn, and so he she, like, brings back his body, and they bury him in the lawn. But it's, the one thing that's different, I was reading the, watching the movie last night. The movie, after they bury him, there's roses that are growing and growing a lot. In the book, I believe it's lilacs, and it's the summertime, and they talk, in the book, it's, like, very descriptive about how fast the lilacs are growing and how sickeningly sweet the scent is. That makes sense. Lilacs are fucking, I, if you've ever lived in the South during gardenia season mm-hmm. or lilacs, it's too much. And it's, like, they're they're growing so abundantly and so fast on the site where they buried him that it's, like, the sickeningly sweet saccharine kind of smell. That's what I remember from okay. the book. I could see that. And then the cop comes into town. He's questioning Jillian. He falls in love with Sally. They go, they're, the hotel scene is pretty similar to okay. the movie. Um, yeah. But they, then eventually the cop's like, yeah, forget about it. When they did the script originally, Jimmy was written as a uh, Texas redneck, actually. I don't and remember what, happened, what his character's like in the book, to be honest. Well, the director saw um, Grin in... Uh, what did he see him in? ER? No, not in ER. He <laughs> saw him in like Seven Days in Sarajevo and another film that I can't remember. But some pretty serious roles and and I guess was like, that's the guy. Yeah. That's I will our say, cowboy vampire. When I was talking to my mom about this movie, she was like, oh, and it had the guy from ER in it. <laughs> she, was, she was like, so, she was like, he was a bad guy in this movie, but he was a good guy in ER. You know, Nicole Kidman said when... So I used to have the VHS. Um, I also watched it on TV. But at the end of the VHS used to be a behind-the-scenes documentary that you could watch. And in it, Nicole Kidman would talk about him whenever he would do those roles. It was hard to keep a straight face because... Um, he's such a nice and funny person in real life. Oh, I love that. And so whenever he would be mean and stuff, she would like have a heart. She would be like, "Who's this?" You know. So we've been we've been talking a little bit about touch points about what happens in the movie. Let's get into a synopsis. We did. Two sisters. Uh, they've got a family curse. It specifically um, is that an Owens woman, if she finds love, that lover dies. Uh, and it's, and it's just following the relationship of these two sisters and the things that happen to them throughout their lives um, while living with these two aunts who are very clearly witches, are um, in the community which does not want witches. They don't like them. They talk shit about them the whole fucking time. Witch, witch, you're a bitch. <laughs> they don't say that. <laughs> They do say that. They say, which, which, you're a witch. No, they say, which, which, you're a bitch. Are you sure? Yes. I watched it last night. I've seen the movie a million times. They They call them a bitch. They say, maybe the TV edited version subs witch for bitch, but they say, which, which, you're a bitch. Which, which, you're a bitch. I promise you. They say, which, which, you're a bitch. I'm going to, we're going to pull the clip from YouTube. Pull pull the clip and let's play it. (laughs) Do it. I believe it. Some fun facts about this that you didn't ask for that I'm going to tell you. Even though, so main fun fact, that's not a real house. 
It's just a set. Most of this film is actually recorded in LA on a soundstage. The interior of the house is built for soundstage. Um, the exterior was built by these two architects who I think are incredible. Um, Robin Standifer and Stephen uh, Ali, Alsh, Alsh, I think is how you say his name. Anyway, they're a married couple. Um, and actually when Barbara Streisand saw the movie, she called and was like, I want to buy the house. And they're like, no, it doesn't exist. Ugh. But there's a lot to this and a lot of reasons why. So. But who wouldn't want to buy that house? That is the dream house. It's a beautiful a house. A coastal house. I think they house even worked on the In Grimoire New England. In the movie. Everything about the kitchen. It's beautiful. The greenhouse. The conservative. Like. It's a beautiful house. Everything. Everything. So. Cast and crew felt supernatural things on that half of a house that was built. And the reason it was done that way was actually, so they had to shoot in Washington because it was cheaper. So they, they shoot in Washington. And also the director was working on two different films at the time. So she was flying in between two different sets back and forth regularly and would Whoa. sleep on the plane. It's actually like kind of a miracle that this whole thing came together. But um, anyway... They they wanted to shoot it out in this one small town. It has this iconic road, whatever. So they found a plot of land to do it on, and it was a rented piece of land. However, it's a native burial site. <gasps> so dun, dun, dun. the rule was, or it's native land, either way. I mean, it's all native land. <laughs> the rule was, yeah, it's all native land. Um, they weren't allowed to disturb the soil. So what they had to do is they actually built... A, a platform and then they built the house on the platform and the rule was that they had to get it shot and get it taken down and off the land as soon as possible as soon as they were done with it and so that is why there is no house that exists they, they didn't have a place to actually build it it was rental and they couldn't disturb the land and they had to do that how much on money did they that, spend on this though uh because I don't know, it's a pretty sure elaborate set. Well, then you have part of it in the sound stage that's happening in L.A., which I imagine this was difficult to coordinate everything together. Um, but on top of that, at the beginning of the film, they had a witch, a real witch who was contracted as an advisor <gasps> on the film. I had no idea. Oh, girl, it gets crazy. So she ends up coming back and she's like, I want $250,000. <gasps> And I want I want some rights to the film. How so much I get money? In, how much money is two hundred fifty thousand dollars in nineteen ninety eight? I would imagine it's a lot of money. You could buy a lot of Beanie Babies with that. <laughs> <laughs> Give me that little purple bear. <laughs> get it out. Um. So everything in that scene, by the way, is fake. Even the trees are fake. They use silk wow. trees, which you cannot tell. So it is pretty incredible when, everything that they were able to put together. When she hacks away at the roses, are those fake roses? I don't know that answer. Okay. I would imagine that... They wouldn't have had time to grow roses. One, they wouldn't have had time. But you can transplant. I just... I don't know. Nicole Kidman really hurt herself for this movie, actually. So it is possible. What do you mean? Um. So, you know, there's the, the possession scene. Yeah. She is really banging her head. Oh, shit. She had just gotten off of... Oh, (laughs) wow. Well, she had just gotten off set with um, 
is it Kubrick who does uh, uh, Eyes Wide Shut? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so she but was, she loves Kubrick. Yeah, she loves Kubrick. Well, she was used to doing like a hundred takes on stuff. Yeah, Sandra Bullock is like a one shot wonder. You know, yeah. a couple takes and she's done. But Nicole Kidman wanted to get everything right because she had been working with Kubrick for months. Yeah. So everything was 100 shots. She would just keep doing it over and over again. And multiple cast members have said, like, when she was doing that scene where she's hitting her head so hard on the floor, she is really hitting her head. Like, they had to uh, replace some of the, the boards of wood with rubber because they never knew where her head was going to hit because she was flopping so violently. Oh my God. So I would not be surprised if those were real rose bushes that she is just, like, ripping her hands on. That's Sandy Bullock during the rose bushes, though. Oh, you're right. Yeah. No, well, she also goes out there and gets mad and cuts I think it's Sandy Bullock. But I will say I that, to watch like, it again. I love Nicole Kidman. I am a big Nicole Kidman fan. I think she's beautiful. I think she's an amazing actress. And I don't know what it is, I just love her. She's she's very good in this. Yeah. And she's she's great. She and Sandra Bullock have very good chemistry in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I would they agree. Do. Um, should we get into the soundtrack a little bit? Yeah, let's go ahead. All right. So the first the first track on the soundtrack is from the impeccable, the incredible, the wonderful Stevie Nicks. Oh, yeah. And what a pleasure that Stevie Nicks contributed to the soundtrack. Um, just witchy vibes all around. So our first soundtrack, uh, our first track on the Practical Magic official soundtrack is If You Ever Did Believe by Stevie Nicks.
Again, that was If You Did Believe by Stevie Nicks. So this song actually doesn't play at all in the film proper. It is the end credit song. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were just talking about this while the music was playing. Cheryl Crow actually is on the backup vocals of this album that Stevie Nicks released with this. Um as I mentioned, I have a very personal relationship with this soundtrack. I listened to CD a lot as a kid. I listened to it a lot as an adult, and I enjoy I To this day, I will put the soundtrack on if I'm just in the mood for it. And I, I love this song. It's a great song. Yeah. Um, Stevie Nicks has obviously got a really beautiful voice and a very witchy vibe to her in general. Yes. She loves playing with that rumor, I feel like, mm-hmm. so hard. Yeah. Speaking of witchy vibes, do you want to talk about the witchy curse that happened during the film? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we were talking about it during the break. Um, so the producer, that witch, she she came back, she made these demands, and they were like, that's ridiculous. And so then she cursed the producer, and eventually the WB ended up settling out with her. I don't know how much for or what, but the director ended up getting an exorcism because he just didn't want to play with it. <laughs> You know, it's just sometimes you want to be safe and sorry. So, yeah, just safe. And just I respect like, that, man. He was like, it's worth $100. That's what he said, how much it was. <laughs> yeah, it's me. worth $100 to know, to have a bruja just say like, yeah, baby, you're good. Yeah. Not, That's not all I need. Face, you're good. That's all I need. <laughs> yeah. That's all I need. Just crazy. Um, one last thought before we move on from mm-hmm. Stevie Nicks, if you ever did believe. I would recommend... Drive down the highway, drive down a country road, windows down, blast this song. Oh, yeah. This is that kind of song. I mean, I think anything that Stevie Nooks, Steve, Stevie Nooks, Stevie Nooks. <laughs> Stevie Nooks is, is the knockoff version. <laughs> it's the boxer version. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anything that she's really touched is, has been good. I, obviously, I love Fleetwood Mac. Rumors is a f- fucking fantastic album. Yeah. I, all of their albums are good. I don't think there's... There's no debate. No one's fighting you yeah. on this, babe. Yeah. <laughs> there, no, no one's mad about this. No but, one's um, mad. Yeah. 
Um, she has the kind of vocals in the same way that Joni Mitchell, who shows up on the soundtrack, th- that carry you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like she's emotive yeah. in many a way. Now, I want to talk, a, I want to mention a couple of my notes before we move on to the mm-hmm. next song. Um, one of them is um, just a note that I made um, that when they, when the sisters move in with the aunts, the big thing they say is chocolate cake for breakfast. Oh, yeah. And that's just a note from the movie. In the movie, Sally is a health freak. And I think it's because the aunts were having chocolate cake for breakfast. So when she has her own kids, she's like a total health freak. Um, and I, I wrote this question in my notes. Um, have you ever made a blood oath? Yes. I can't tell you about it, but I have. As part of the blood oath. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Proceed. I'll tell you something. If you were... Did you, like, cut your hand like Sally and Jillian do in the movie? I watched a lot of movies growing up, and I was a weird kid. So, yeah. But not as deep as they did. Yeah. And I think it... And <laughs> without getting too far into it, I kind of already had a wound on my hand, so it was, like, easy. But uh, continue. Yes. Why? No, what, that was, what do you have to say? That was just in my question, my in my notes oh. that I wrote. I was like... I've never made a blood oath. Let have me, you ever made a blood oath? So this movie, I don't... <laughs> for me and for so many people that I knew, it was such a important movie. And doing weird shit like that was cool. Mm-hmm. When I look back on my childhood memories, I am now alarmingly aware that I it's possible... That I was white trash. <laughs> uh, I did some real hillbilly shit back in the day with no context of, of understanding that's hillbilly shit. So when I retell a story now to people as an adult and I hear it out loud and I say things like my ankle got run over by a riding lawnmower that was driven by a seven-year-old, you know, there's some context that's put there mm-hmm. and I get... I understand it. And part of that is your blood oath. And my blood oath is included. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've also had a BB trapped in my uh, in my knuckles before. So Lord knows I've done it all. <laughs> my other notes kind of in the, in the first part of the movie that I wrote down was um, just being very jealous of the aunt's wardrobe. And specifically, oh, yeah. Stockyard Channing. Is it Stockyard Channing? Yeah. I, I, I wrote in my notes, Stockyard. I think that's just because I'm from South Texas, and I'm like, Livestock Show. Stockyard. It's it's Stockyard Channing. Uh, (laughs) uh, That's Channing Tatum's new dancer name. Speaking of white trash. Stockyard Channing. Stockyard Channing. Um, Stockyard Channing. She wears this amazing hat. Oh, yeah. This big floppy hat. Uh And I was just like watching the movie last night. I was just like, yeah, I'd wear every, I would wear everything that Jillian wears, everything that Sally wears, and everything the aunts wear. I have to be honest, they're all good outfits. They're all good they're outfits. They're all good outfits. That, that was done intentionally. The costuming was made to make the aunts look ambiguous in their age. Mm, interesting. So they pulled a lot of Victorian things and stuff. Um, and just layered things yeah. in such a way. But I think that they did it in such a way that was really flattering um for the aunts and in fact like when they were doing the makeup for them they ended up going with ballet makeup 
Hmm. Because when they initially did it, they thought the makeup was too thick and made them look older. Hmm. And so they kind of, you know, it's it's interesting when you're paying attention to the eye makeup specifically mm-hmm. on Stalker Channing. Yes. Um, it's kind of Susie in the Banshees, but pulled back a lot. <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? And so they they... I don't know. They do a lot with their look that makes their age very ambiguous, and I appreciate that from yeah. a costuming perspective. Yeah. Um, I think they did a, a really solid job. Gotcha. But so the next track on the soundtrack is "This Kiss" by Faith Hill. <laughs> so this track plays when Sally is falling in love for the first time, and she's falling in love with Michael. Mm-hmm. Um. So the context of the movie is that the aunts have placed a curse, not a spell, I guess, on Sally. Well, she's sad in the beginning. Because she, so, because Sally and Jillian's mom dies by suicide. Mm -hmm. Because Because their dad died. Because their dad died because of the curse on the Owens women. Mm -hmm. And because of that, young Sally pledges that she's never going to fall in love. So she makes a Amitas... Ver- what is it? Veritas? Amatas, a- Amas Veritas, um, which is a true love spell, and she puts the spell for a man with one green eye, one blue eye, who can flip pancakes because she <laughs> believes he doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and be- when they get older, Jillian is very ready to leave the house. She wants to go explore the world, get away from the aunts, get away from their family, get away from Massachusetts. She and wants to. She just wants to love. She, she wants loves to, loving. She wants to live, laugh, love, <laughs> but in a sexy way. In a sexy way. Very sexy. Yeah. Um, Sally is very doesn't want to fall in love, so the aunts cast a spell for Sally to fall in love. Well, because she, they're out one day, you know, just going around the town. And you get to see how rude everyone is to them Mm -hmm. and michael looks at her and she looks at him and they clearly have a connection and so the aunts decide well we'll give it a little push and they do a love spell and then you have that that incredible intro with faith hill and that kiss so let's listen to it this is this kiss the pop remix radio version by faith hill I don't want another heartbreak I don't need another turn to cry No, I don't want to learn the hard way Baby, hello, oh no, goodbye But you got me like a rocket Shooting straight across the sky It's the way you love me It's a feeling like this It's centrifugal motion It's perpetual bliss It's that pivotal moment this kiss, this kiss Unstoppable This kiss, this kiss Cinderella said to Snow White How does love get so awkward? Oh, all I wanted was a white knight With a good heart, soft touch, fast horse Ride me off into the sunset Baby, I'm forever yours It's the way you love me It's a feeling like this It's centrifugal motion It's perpetual bliss It's that pivotal moment It's uh, unthinkable This kiss, this kiss Unsinkable This kiss, this kiss 
Again, that was This Kiss, the pop remix radio version by Faith Hill. Mm-hmm. That song slaps. It slaps, baby. It is so good. Just from the moment it starts. When they kiss, like you, it it's one of those moments that I feel like uh, romantic period pieces build to. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It is a magical movie romance it's, moment. It's a, yeah. It's... So I almost called it a Mr. Darcy moment, but I don't think that's fair because it's just something totally different. But it is a you're stoked for them. You are stoked for them. It's a little serotonin boost. You are stoked for them. It's just wonderful to see. And you see them falling in love. And it's just they're so cute when she's writing that letter to Jilly where she's like telling her, I'm so happy. I don't even care about his beard. It's three years late. Three years later, I've got these beautiful girls. You love this man just as much as she does, and he doesn't say a single line. Yeah. I think it's really interesting how much we love this male character who doesn't utter a word. He's perfect. He is perfect. He's perfect. He's perfect. He's perfect. We love him. We love perfect. He doesn't need to talk. I don't even care. I I love him so much. It's weird how much I love him. He's And it's it's just Uh, wonderful. He makes me want to move to Maine and, (laughs) like... Go to hockey games. And sell apples. Yeah. Like, because he's in the movie, he's, like, carrying a crate of green apples. I still don't know what his job is. No clue. Not a clue. But I love him. But great job. He asked me to marry him. I say yes. Yeah. I don't believe in the institution of marriage, but I say Uh -uh. yes. Yes. (laughs) I say yes. (laughs) I love him. Love him. Um... So, this kiss <laughs> and the next song on the soundtrack kind of play pretty close together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what you see... next? So, next is um, Gotta Give It Up by Marvin Gaye. Oh, yeah. So... I think se- he wrote this in the 70s, too. Yeah. And it, like, in a, an odd time in his life, from yeah. what I understand. So I'm so sorry. It, the, and the way it's in the movie is it starts where... Um, 
Sally and her family are having a little party, and it transitions to show you what Jillian's up to. And Jillian... And it's a good transition. Mm-hmm. You know, I get frustrated reading some of the critics' commentary, because there are some really great transitions that happen mm-hmm. in that film. And parallels between the and two parallels. sisters' lives. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And just in so, general, odd shots that I enjoy. Yeah. Which we'll talk about with the Johnny Mitchell part. So here is Gotta Give It Up, part one, by Marvin Gaye.
So that was Got to Give It Up Part One by Marvin Gaye. So I wrote in my notes under this song um, that when I was a kid, this was sexy to me. This this was a sexy song. And the next song we're going to get into is even sexier. Oh, I'm very excited. But Which one's next on your list? Uh, next one is going to be Is This Real by Lisa Hall. Oh, Sexy okay. song. Okay. Um, but Gotta Give It Up is when the first time you see Jillian with Jimmy Antov. Yeah. Jimmy Antilov? Antov? Uh, no, Angelov. Angelov. Jimmy and Ant- when she's saying it on film, it sounds like Jimmy Angelo. Yeah. Because she's like, I've got two but, words for you. Jimmy Angelo. She's going to say yes. that one. This Marvin Gaye song, this is a sexy adult pool party. Yeah. To seven-year-old Sarah Downing. This, if you ever look at the extras in that scene, it's a good time. It's a good time. <laughs> this is a sexy party. There's a lot going on there. It kinda, yeah. I'm going to be honest. It, it gives off Florida vibes. It does. It gives, <laughs> it gives off some vibes. Well, because I'm they say watching, she's in Orlando. Well, you know what's so funny is when I watched that as a kid, I thought that that was like the coolest scene, you know? And then you've got this silk yes. scarf across her. I mean, it's hot, right? I watched it as an adult and I looked at the other people around her and the and the dudes that are talking to her and stuff and I was like, I've been to that pool party. <laughs> I'm off to the side eating dips, but I've been to that pool party. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's wild. Yeah. So the next song on the soundtrack comes pretty consecutively in line mm-hmm. with the previous. It's kind of transitioning from Jillian at the pool party, falling in love with Jimmy Antlov. No, Angelov. Just say Jimmy Angelo. It's just Jimmy A. That's fine. Just Jimmy, Jimmy. Let's We're call him Jimmy. 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 Jimmy's my dad's name, so it's weird. Um, <laughs> which is a real sexy song. This is Is It Real by Lisa Hall. And and just a side note, she is a singer, but also her band was called Lisa Hall, but it's all one word, which I think is weird. I don't know. I don't Perhaps. have more information I like that it. she named it after herself. Okay, like good for her. Good for her. She's probably a Gemini. Well, why would you like put it together? It doesn't matter. In fact, I only have two words to say to you. Jimmy Angel. Jimmy.
Once again, that was Is This Real by Lisa Hall. So with this part of the movie, just talking about it, Jillian is in love with Jimmy, but Sally's husband has died. Yes. The curse. The death beetle, when you hear it. Um... So actually, death beetles, they burrow in wood. And they tap. Are they a real bug? It's a real bug. Wait, what? Yeah, this is a real thing. I didn't know this was a real thing. There's several, like, real, uh, specifically Wiccan beliefs and some pagan ones. Um, not that the two are separated, but there is a difference. Um, things that happen throughout it. The black dog that follows Michael to work is is foreshadowing, and that is, like... Which is really interesting because we'll get into the soundtrack later. Because the next about song is Nick Black Drake. Eyed Dog. Right. So that, that black dog is an allusion to that. And with the um, with the death beetle, I mean, obviously you couldn't do tapping. It wouldn't come across as well. So they had to use a different beetle noise. What do you mean tapping? So they burrow into wood and they tap in the wood. And that's what you actually hear is just really rapid tapping like that. Like somebody's in their coffin. That's the the connection between the two, but obviously that wouldn't play well for for noises of of something yeah. signifying. I do death. think I do think that going into the next scene where Sally's husband is going to die because of the curse and the song "Black Eyed Dog" by Nick Drake, which we'll play here in a second, it builds an anxiety. Oh yeah, and it does a good job of it. And the way that it's shot is shot very well because mm-hmm. you are. You are tense, and then, yeah, I mean, it, 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 there are shots that are, that are done really well in this film. Again, I am still surprised that critics hated it so much, just because there's these very isolated shots that are great, that build emotion, and you ride it with them, and maybe, again, that's because I saw this so often when I was a kid, and, yeah, and loved it so much, or, I don't know. And then, again, just for context, just in case we didn't mention it before, the way the story begins is with Maria Owens, I believe, Mm -hmm. um, is one of the witches in the Salem witch trials or whatever the witch trials are in this town in Massachusetts. It's named Maria's Island. Um, She puts a curse. Well, she she in the beginning, she's being put on trial because. She fell in love with a man who was married to another woman, and he let her hang, but she doesn't hang. Mm -hmm. And the rope that is around her neck from her hanging, um, the the town is like, well, we can't fucking kill her. So they, oh, sorry for saying that word. Um, the, The town says we can't kill her. So they banish her to an island so that she can't be near anyone, and she builds that house right there Mm -hmm. like you're seeing her at the house and she saves that gallow noose which later comes into the film um and then that that island that she lived on is then the established island the only time that you see a reference to it is when they go to the post office and it says Mm -hmm. maria's island yes and that's it um but so she puts a curse on the family i think you mentioned before but that's i just wanted to make sure we touched on why sally's husband is dying yeah so, again, um, up next is going to be Black-Eyed Dog by Nick Drake. Black-Eyed 
Let's talk about Nick Drake because I'm in love tell, with him also. Tell so me many about him. I'm in love with in this movie. Um, so what does when Nick I was, Drake look like? When I was looking up stuff about Nick Drake, um, he yes, really 100%. he really reminds me of Elliot Smith, and I don't know how mm. familiar you are with Elliot Smith. But I Nick can Drake, see the vibes. I can yeah, see the vibes. He definitely, um, unfortunately, depression took his life very early. Um, He's fought. I know that's like a weird thing to follow up with someone like died by suicide, but like I just like Google imaged him. He's fucking hot. There's so many. There's so many attractive people in this film. Um, I would. I can't be really careful with how crass I am. I was, okay, he's an attractive man. Uh, Nick Drake was an attractive man. He was. He's really interesting because um, when you're like reading about him, he very much only wanted his sound to to sound a certain way and they really tried to um because other musicians loved him they critics uh would recognize that he had good poetry and things but it wasn't very marketable is kind of what i gathered um and he liked that very i mean when you listen to his acoustic guitar like you're listening to studio sounds you know what i'm saying like you're Mm -hmm. you're picking up everything in the way that Elliot Smith played it, it's very reminiscent of that but he ended up influencing Robert Smith of the cure heavily and mm. our beautiful friend Kate Bush who we love she we actually love. cites him as a um, somebody who influenced her and I, I would say that's that's very impressive uh, to me Nick Drake kind of comes off as a musician's musician in some ways it's interesting your comparison to Elliot Smith. So I just did like a quick Google search of Nick Drake to like mm-hmm. look up photos of him because I don't think I've ever seen a photo of him. Mm-hmm. Again, total babe. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting because under Google, when it says like people also search for 
Elliot, Elliot Smith, Smith. Oh my God. Is one of the ones that I people. I wonder if it's just so there's like kind of a suicide of like folk rock. Kind there's of kind of a kindred spirit going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Man, well, then you should, dude, Leonard Cohen comes up so much in this too. Hoobie! not even on the soundtrack. Hoobie! Um, I believe it's either Nick Drake. Well, I think it's Nick Drake. Uh, the uh, one of the guys that was working with him worked with Leonard Cohen first, and that that was part of the reason that he got picked up is well, because they were like, "Oh man, this guy's got a very similar vibe." Yeah. Well, speaking of Leonard Cohen, makes me think of Joni Mitchell, which is our next song on the oh, soundtrack. Oh yeah, um, and Joni. So we can get into it. Is that off the the Blue album? It is off the Blue album. That is regarded as one of the greatest albums ever released, and one of the greatest albums released by a woman. Mm. Um, it made both lists and it, and it, I think it is in many people's like favorite album Yeah, and it is interesting. I mean, I don't know how much you want to get into. I know you have some stuff to say about Joni Mitchell, but it is interesting. Like she credits a lot of, of being able to write that album to things that happened in her life yeah. previous to that, including giving up a child, um, for adoption mm-hmm. from her early life and not getting to raise them. And mm-hmm. she talks, she alludes to that in some of those lyrics. Mm-hmm. It, it's just, I don't know. I think that her work's really powerful and drenched yeah. in emotion. Drenched is such a great adjective. Um, <laughs> I thought about myself. I have such a personal relationship with the next song, mm-hmm. A Case of You by Joni Mitchell. I have a very personal relationship with Joni Mitchell to get a little bit deep right now, um, my mother, um, so growing up, my mom listened to a lot of singer songwriter, especially female singer songwriters. So Joni Mitchell, Judy Collins were big growing up, but then also in the nineties, people like Tori Amos and Jewel, (laughs) um, and Sarah McLaughlin were also really big. Um, but Joni Mitchell was kind of a standout, um, for me as a kid. Um, and to get a little bit personal, my mom was diagnosed with cancer almost six years ago. And on the day that my mom was diagnosed with cancer, she called me and told me it was a Sunday morning. She told me before she went to church. We're from Texas. <laughs> um, I think my parents said the same thing, to be honest. Exactly. Yeah. So she called me. And so the whole day, I spent the entire day deep cleaning my little apartment in Miami, Florida, and listening to the Blue Album by Joni Mitchell. Because it just reminded me of my mom. Yeah. Um, So it's a very personal album for me. Joni Mitchell is very personal to me. It's always going to remind me of my mom for my whole life. Um, But A Case of You, which is our next song coming up and we'll play it, is, to me, it is just such a wonderful love song. Mm -hmm. Um, And just the idea, I mean, it's called A Case of You because in the song she says, I could drink A Case of You and I would still be on my feet. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just, I just love it. It's a great song. It is a beautiful song. Um, People don't know if she's singing about Graham Nash, who she lived with in a house. Is that correct? Yeah. I don't know for how long. Or possibly Leonard Cohen, which is the connection to go back. Leonard Cohen comes up again. Mm Mm-hmm. He's and not even on the soundtrack. He's but not like, on the I'm soundtrack. You, like, we almost need to have a section in our show that's just six degrees from Leonard Cohen. Six degrees from like because he came up in the Strike soundtrack comes up too. A lot, and I yeah, I love him. You know, he played at Coachella one year. I yeah, know, yeah. Anyway, so the the Crosby, Stills and Nash song "Our House" um, is about the uh, Graham Nash wrote that about the yeah. song that he and Joni Mitchell lived in. Um, but without further ado, we've built yes. it up a lot. Yeah. 
ladies and gentlemen. Well, I don't want to say ladies and gentlemen. I would say um, the girls, gays, and theys. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they say on TikTok. Because um, that's who this song is. This, this show is for the girls, the gays, and the theys. <laughs> and I can't listen to Joni Mitchell on Spotify, so I have to look it up on Apple Music just a second because Joni Mitchell took her music off of Spotify because of Joe Rogan. Oh, yes, right. So this is A Case of You by Joni Mitchell. And I said, constantly in the darkness, where's that at? If you want me, I'll be in the bar on the back of a cartoon coaster in a blue TV screen light. I drew a map of Canada. I would still be on my feet I am a lonely painter I live in a box of pain Touching souls Surely you touch my anchors Party you pours out of me In these lines from time to time Go to him, stay with him if you can 
but be prepared to bleed. Oh, but you are in my blood, you're my holy wine. You're so bitter, bitter and so sweet. Oh, I could drink a case of you. A Case of You by Joni Mitchell. Um, I really love that scene. It's one of my favorite scenes. Uh, she is direct, so she is actually leaving Tucson, Arizona. That is where part of this film takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's driving through Arizona, and that exact drive that she's taking, by the way, um, I didn't tell you this earlier, but that is the exact drive that I took after my Mimat's funeral. Mm-hmm. And I listened to this song very loud as I drove through those two uh, giant rock where it's split in the canyon and I fucking bawled like a baby. I'm about to bawl like a baby. (laughs) I bawled like a baby. Um, Yeah, I actually, I totally forgot about that until just this moment. Uh, But I remember the sky vividly being blue like it is in this scene. And then, you know, remembering this scene and, and to be honest, for a moment, laughing in the middle of crying so much because it's such a... I mean, like, I don't know. What an odd thing to think of that that movie scene and then just fucking lose it. I had kept it together for so long. And mm-hmm. then just that, that was the song and the moment that I mourned her. You know? That I felt it. Yeah. That it was real for yeah. me. And it was just such an explosion of feelings that... Yeah. I feel you when you say that that song is attached because it gets attached. It gets to, attached. Yeah. Um, she's, she is a powerful singer-songwriter. And it's funny because she credits herself as a painter more than she does that. She says yeah. that she's a painter who got involved with music and caught up in it. It's interesting, yeah. Um, so it's just... For yeah. any of our listeners out there, um, I would recommend... Listening to Blue by Joni Mitchell, but I would also recommend she does a recording. There's a song on Blue called Both Sides Now. Mm. Listen to that song. She records it again when she's older. So Joni Mitchell has polio. Um and she's I didn't know that she's about working on the ability to walk. Um, but she hasn't been as active in the public eye because she's struggling. She's been diagnosed with polio since she was very young, like six mm-hmm. or nine or something. Um, but she's not really able to sing anymore. Um, and for health reasons and other reasons, um, she records a version of both sides now later in her life with a deeper voice that has a lot of power in it. Ooh. Um, so not related to the soundtrack, but I would recommend that. And then another Joni Mitchell fact that I actually just real I, I just learned about is that she has been hosting songwriting workshops and boot camps oh, for people like Harry Styles. What? Yes. 
not for him, but that he's attended. Um, Maggie Rogers has also been in attendance and the band Lucia has also been in attendance. These kind of like she's hosted because she's no longer able to really like record music or uh-huh. like sing music because of like health reasons, medical reasons, whatever. She's been really kind of instrumental in assisting in the songwriting capabilities of some young artists, which I think is really interesting. That is really interesting. I also, yeah. I just love um, creative people who, as far as the public is concerned, has made it, you know, mm-hmm. like they don't need to try anymore. She's already been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like she's done it. She is regarded as one of the greatest singer songwriters. Um, she's done yeah. it. She doesn't have to do anymore, but that she she cares and wants to. I think that's just so interesting. I think Taylor Swift wants to be Joni Mitchell. She's not. I'm she, so sorry. No, you don't need to be sorry. I think sorry. every episode I, don't think that, I say something that's kind of polarizing. <laughs> and I, I gotta be honest, I'm not a T-Swifty. I'm just not. I like a lot of Taylor Swift's music, mm-hmm. but I'm not, I'm not dying on that hill. Mm-mm. I'm I'm at the bottom of the hill I, and I'm alive. <laughs> I'm not dying on the T Swift hill, but yeah. I do feel like sometimes when I like think about Joni Mitchell, I'm like I feel like Taylor Swift wants to be Joni Mitchell, but she's just mm-hmm. like not really quite gonna get there. But I don't know. Maybe in twenty time, years time we'll be thinking about who am I to put a cap on somebody? But I will say. She's not Johnny Mitchell. Yeah. I think Taylor Swift is a talented songwriter, but she's not Johnny Mitchell. I think that's fair. I just, I don't. But I've never been behind like major celebrity crushes. I say that, and you know what? As I say that, do you know what image pops in my mind? Which image? Gritty. And you know I love gritty. That is a celeb I would die for. I will die. I won't die on a hill for Taylor Swift. I will die in a hot hall for Gritty. And I've never even been to Philadelphia. I, can we, I. I, I haven't even, oh I don't, God. I actually. We don't kind have of, to. If I they kind play of, the Coyotes, we can go watch him. I kind of loathe the Northeast. Fair. I kind <laughs> This Again, is like. polarizing oh, views. <laughs> this is a whole nother discussion, but as someone who grew up in the South, like the oh. way, the way that people in the North, like look down on Southerners. Um Yeah. I, I will agree with that. Anyway, but I, I will die on I will die on the hill of gritty. Yeah. Never I, been to Philly. See, but here's the thing. I'd go to Philly. Gritty wouldn't make you die on that hill. And no. That's why. That's, that's why, why yeah. you can get on that hill and throw soup cans at police. Yeah. <laughs> for my family. I'm getting soup for my family. Um, um so before we get into the next song, part. just like thinking of my notes in terms of the chron- the chronological order of the movie. Um I have two notes. Um, one is so so they play the Joni Mitchell song as Jillian as driving across the country to see Sally mm-hmm. to kind of get her out of her depression after Michael has died. Sally is in bed every day. She's not there for her kids. Mm-hmm. She's like really falling, which is which is kind of interesting because it's a depiction of depression that we don't often see in movies. Yeah, I, I like the comment that she makes about brushing her goddamn teeth. That's what she says to her. Yeah. If you don't get up and brush your goddamn teeth, and that's what yeah. makes Sally crack a smile. Um, I also think that this is one of the times where it really highlights the sister's connection and that they can call to each other from miles away and know that the other is in danger. Yeah. Um, and, and that they, and that they to- come to support each other. It is a big deal to me that Jillian leaves this seemingly perfect life where she's very much in love with Jimmy Angelo at this junction to come take care of Sally. Mm-hmm. 
That's part of the reason that she drugs him, gets out of there, and gets back. So Sally, or sorry, Jillian is visiting Sally at the house Mm -hmm. with the aunts. And my note that I wrote down while I was watching this movie, can you imagine having a fireplace in your bedroom? Oh my God, you know it's so funny that you wrote that (laughs) note? Because mine's also about fire. When she's in the bathroom, I'm like, can you imagine having that many candles in that bathroom? The cleanup. Can you imagine? All those candles lit. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Yeah. Like, the luxury of having a lit fireplace in your own mm-hmm. bedroom? Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd die. I would not be able to keep up with the maintenance. No. No. I would I would love it, though. I would love it, though. I would love it. Um, the other... You note, love to be warm, though. I love to be warm. I sleep with a heating pad every night. I love being warm. Bizarre. Um, my, uh, <laughs> bizarre. Bizarre. My other note um, that I think happens in this scene, and it happens throughout the house... Whenever Jillian wants to wake up Sally, she gently strokes her nose. Oh, you know what? I never noticed that. And that's very cute, actually. Really? Because I cannot think of a way that I would want to be woken up less. Uh, Face off. That way. (laughs) (laughs) That iconic Nicolas Cage film. Someone fucking stroking their hand across your face. I hate it. I just like um, if I if, guess it's like a it's it's a light face off. I don't know. know if some if my partner if my sister if a best friend came into my room and gently so don't do that stroked my nose until I woke up I would have a fit. I think I smacked your butt before to wake you up. <laughs> I'd rather that. I you were you were fine with that. I'd, I'd rather that. <laughs> um. So moving along, um, what comes up next? So next is Nowhere and Everywhere by Michelle Lewis. Oh, she's interesting. Did so, you know she was a regular on Sesame Street? No on top way. Of that, on top of that. Because um, I, I think she's a British songwriter. Uh, she got an Emmy nomination for Nickelodeon's Bubble Guppies, which I have never seen. But I have to tell you, two words, Bubble Guppies, put together, makes me want to know. And I probably don't want to know. I'm sure it's a children's show. Uh, bubble yeah. guppies. Bubble guppies. <laughs> You're going to make me sing just, song. Just bubble a couple guppies. bubble guppies. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this this song, I mean, the song like... You does think it, it's filler? A little bit. Okay. It doesn't totally do it for me, but it does. Um, it plays when Sally is writing her letter to Jillian under the moon with a ring around it. Oh, this is the letter that he has read like 700 times or exactly. something. Exactly. I think he says, I read it a thousand times. Exactly. That's what he says, a thousand times. So this is Nowhere and Everywhere by Michelle Lewis.
as shady as cheap sunglasses But as perfect as this October Monday passes To a dragon who sold around town And I'm always in such a hurry But never too fast Playing chicken with delivery boys And tag with the subway Again, that was Nowhere and Everywhere by Michelle Lewis. So this song plays when Sally is writing her letter to Jillian. She mm-hmm. notes when she's writing the letter that the moon has a ring around it, and that's a sign of troubles to come. Mm-hmm. Which comes back later in the film uh, when she goes to pick up Jillian, and it, she's like, oh, there's blood around the moon. It becomes a blood it. moon. Do you know that um, this movie is the... Um, So this movie is very important to me. I grew up with two girls who were sisters and, and they very much like me and my brother are Irish twins. So one right after the other and, uh, one's a redhead and the other one is a blonde. And so this movie was very, very developmental for them and very important. And, you know, like Mm. when you're a little girl, you're all witches. I mean, that was my experience. I was constantly (laughs) pulling things out of the garden and and putting it in a bowl and mixing it up. Light as a feather, stiff as a board. Show me a a little girl who went to a slumber party who did not play light as a feather, stiff as a board. Yeah. I, I feel like in every femme identifying child, even not, even not any child that went through that specifically little girls they had a witchcraft era 
Do you think perhaps that because so Parker and I are both from the Lone Star State, the state <laughs> of Texas. Um, we're both raised in fairly religious households. Yes. In fairly religious, conservative leaning areas. Although I would say that my the part of Texas I grew up in is historically not in the Bible Belt. It's the only part of Texas that's excluded from that. Mm-hmm. Um but nonetheless, like generally conservative, um, do you feel like a child in that? I mean, it's it's almost a type of rebellion. I was actually going to say this movie was an act of rebellion for me. I, I, um, so without getting too much into it, there was a brief period of time and it did not feel brief, but <laughs> it did not feel brief, <laughs> but, uh, definitely a serious point in my life where religion, um, dictated what happened in that house and it was i was not allowed a lot of things a lot of things i wasn't allowed to celebrate halloween i had to figure out which is the only it's the only holiday since i was a very small child that i like i don't even really care about christmas that much i just recently kind of got into christmas and it was based on the enthusiasm of others for christmas (laughs) You know, you mean me and yeah, our I do other mean specifically. <laughs> um, and Steve, Steve too is like very cute about Christmas. Um, but this movie, if I would have been caught with it, I it probably would have been burned. Hmm. And so it coming on regular television was my access to it. Yeah, and and seeing parts of it and not even getting to see all of it together, and then watching it together. So to me, it's not. It doesn't feel. Uh, like an oddly pieced together film because I spent years trying to catch it on television, you know, Mm -hmm. and and memorizing it and things. So it's different for me. But yeah, it does feel like an act of rebellion to a certain extent. Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree with that. And I, and I think the aunts touch on some very important things. They're like, why do you want to be normal? What, what, what is great about being normal? Yeah. When she points out that couple and she's like, he's sleeping with the babysitter and she can finish pound cake in under eight minutes or something. Yeah. Somewhere along that line. Um, you know, the, the, all these people that she's trying to emulate are miserable. Yeah. And that, that was, that was really. So why not just eat chocolate cake for breakfast? Yeah. Like this, this movie, I would say is one of those earmarkers if you had to compile data that, that built somebody's personality or had an influence on it. This, this gets a tab for me. Yeah. Same. You know, same. Um, so in the film, Sally is writing to Jillian. Jillian's never going to receive this letter because as soon as Sally puts it in the mailbox, she gets a call and she instantly knows that it's from Jillian and mm-hmm. Jillian needs her. So she yes. flies, she takes the first flight out of Logan. She says, um, and she flies to Tucson to f- to save Jilly, basically. Mm-hmm. So the next song on the soundtrack is going to be from Elvis Presley. Yeah, this Wait. was recorded in 1972. The original was recorded in 1971. This this uh, was recorded in 1972, uh, just shortly after he had separated from Priscilla. You know, I know very little about Elvis. Dude, I oddly enough know a lot about Elvis. And that's why we're a great team, baby. <laughs> true, true. Man, Elvis, do you know, um, I would really like to review the film Bubba Hotep because I've, a lot of Elvis stuff is going to come out of that. Um, and he's just kind of an interesting 
phenomenon. I don't know another way to talk about him than other than a phenomenon. Um, but so in 1972, that sounds like this song was originally released towards the end of his career. Is that correct? Yeah. Middle end? Bit. Yeah. I mean, when he left Priscilla, he was doing shows in Vegas is my understanding. I need to look that up and really confirm that. But it, it was, there's definitely a, a shift in his music at this point, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, while still very being distinctly Elvis, it's just like a, I don't know. It's a little bit more Vegasy. Yeah, it's like a different type of ballad. I don't. I don't really know how to describe it or put it into words. I'm not a musician by trade. I have played by trade <laughs> in a grindcore band, but I, I don't pretend to um, know that much about it. So in the movie, Sally flies to find Jilly. Mm-hmm. Jilly is obviously now confirmed to be in an abusive relationship with Jimmy. Mm-hmm. She has been physically hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. By Jimmy. And so Sally... I was going to talk about that tiger's eye thing. That was the first time I ever heard that tiger's eye was for protection. And it, that was like a little girl magic fact that yeah. I grew up with. So Sally flies. She finds Jillian in the hotel room, mm-hmm. motel. They're like, let's get in the car. And Jilly says, hold on. I need to go get my tiger's eye. Blood on the moon. Blood on the moon. I've got to go get my tiger's eye. And she goes back for the tiger's eye, which is on the rear view mirror of of Jimmy's car. Mm-hmm. Um, this doesn't have to be in the show, but I, I have a tiger's eye because of this movie. And I sent one to Rachel, the friend I was talking about earlier, because mm-hmm. this was so important to us yeah. growing up. Yeah. This was one of those films that was just like a big bond. Yes. So. And so as Jillian is getting her tiger's eye from the rearview mirror of Jimmy's car, he pops up from the back seat and pulls her in and strangles her. Mm-hmm. So then Sally is forced to... Um, she's got to drive yeah. while also uh, she's like communicating with Jillian as they're driving and such. So this this song, um, just a little side note about it, it's used very well in this moment. And I think that this song in general shows up in film a lot and is used well for creating a tense moment with something that's not normally tense. Mm. Uh, this, this song comes up a lot in the movie Fallen with Denzel Washington and uh, who else is in that? Oh, man, I can't think of his name. He was married to Roseanne. He was uh, on Roseanne. John. John Goodman. That's a great horror movie. Um, I will say that I feel like the moment when you're older and you realize how hot John Goodman is in Roseanne. Oh, yeah. Like. If I, yeah, I actually, I recently I would be, rewatched an old, an old episode of, of uh, Roseanne and I was like, this just seems like a house full of like. Old punks. <laughs> I love it. I love. I, I, I love definitely Roseanne. been in that house. I know Roseanne Barr now yeah, is like very whatever. controversial. They killed her off Ambient the show. made her racist. Whatever. You know, <laughs> there's a lot going on there. But you know, '90s reruns of Roseanne. The love between, and maybe it's because like they're both fat characters, and I'm fat, and I have a soft spot for like a man who loves a fat woman and a, and and fat men also. Anyway, well, he wears a crop top and jorts. So I'm sold. <laughs> That's all I need to know. That's all I... I love a good crop top George's combination on a person. <laughs> so, this, person. so this is Always on My Mind 
by Elvis Presley. Maybe I didn't treat you quite as good as I should have. Maybe I didn't love you quite as often as I could have. Little things I should have said and done, I just never took the time. You were always on my mind. You were always on my mind. Maybe I didn't hold you all those lonely, lonely times. And I guess I never told you I'm so happy that you're mine. If I made you feel second best Girl, I'm so sorry I was blind You were always on my mind You were always on my mind Tell me Tell me that your sweet love hasn't died I just never took the time You were always on my mind in terms of the chronological order of the film um, because the next sound on the soundtrack actually takes us backwards a little bit. Um, it is Everywhere by Brand 3000 and it's really a gorgeous song. Brand Van 3000. Thank so you. Sorry. No, no, no. Thank you for the correction. Brand Van 3000. I was listening to this last night 
Um, and I was like, really kind of, t- I was like, oh, this is a gorgeous song, actually. Yeah, it's interesting this band goes by BV3, and also that there's so much, I don't know that this is so much, but that there are so many Canadian artists on this. I think that's interesting. And maybe that just, is that interesting. I think there's really maybe just two on here, but for some reason I find that interesting. Um, these guys are a Canadian alternative rock and hip-hop collective. And when I hear those words, I kind of think of stuff like, um, what's that one that Erica Badu is involved with? Thievery Corporation. There you go. They, I would say, also are a hip-hop alternative rock collective. But maybe I'm just talking out my ass. Anyway, they're, um, they're on the list of top 150 Canadian artists. I thought it was really interesting. I had, I, no I had no idea. I've only ever heard this song on this movie, mm-hmm. as far as I can remember. But anyway, let's no, play. I agree with you. I had no idea about this band. It's also a little bit hard to find their music. Yeah, um, not available on Spotify. Not I was available able to find on it on Apple. Spotify, but uh, it was because I typed their name in together. Oh no, spaces. No spaces. You can find it on YouTube though. Yeah. Okay. Um. So this is everywhere by Brand Van Three Thousand.
that was um, Everywhere by Brand Van 3000. That is a very distinctly late 90s, early 2000s-ish song. Obviously, it happened, you know, later 90s. But I'm just saying, like, that. there's definitely a movement in music that happens around that. I think you said uh, it kind of reminds you of the gorillas. Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. yeah. I, I was thinking of that And you one. mentioned, like, Slim Jim. Wait. Not Slim that. Jim. <laughs> okay. That's a, another story for another time. But I, when I was a kid, I called him Slim, Fat Boy Slim Jim. Because I had an older brother who was into Fat Boy Slim and also into Beef Jerky. And we always had those in the pantry. That's fair. Uh, Slim Jimothy really hits the spot, <laughs> is what I've been told. Um <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it does. It does remind me of Fat Boy Slim, um, mm. specifically that one music video with uh, Christopher Walken. Mm. I don't remember the song right now, but yeah, I, I get but you know what I mean. And like you know, other bands too that emulate that. I think Avalanches do that a lot in their music, where they're cutting in sound clips and stuff. Uh, maybe not so much the vocals that happen in this, but that that beginning intro with the the sound clips for sure, and that beat. Um, those are the first things I think of. Her voice is very distinct, though, and it, and it also reminds me of, like you were saying, Tori Amos and, and people like that that came. Mm-hmm. So in the in the chronal going back now, going forwards in the film, mm-hmm. um, Jillian has been giving Jimmy Belladonna um, night after night to put him to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, they are being held hostage in the car by this abusive man. Um, and. Jillian, kind of in a witchy moment, kind of telepathically tells Sally that the Belladonna is in her bag. Jimmy hands her a bottle of tequila. Mm-hmm. She pours in a bunch of Belladonna. She doesn't know how much is too much. Mm-hmm. Jimmy drinks it and um, he dies. They've murdered Jimmy. Um, which Are we giving <laughs> away too much by telling them that? I think they've seen the movie. <laughs> but I will we told say, you to watch the movie. <laughs> I will say that like watching this movie, I was like... Um, a song that's not on this soundtrack, I feel like, could potentially fit in oh. another universe. Yeah. Goodbye, Earl, by the Dixie Chicks. <laughs> Man, that would have been a nice editorial note at the end of the film if they just put <laughs> Goodbye, Earl. Uh, that was a real... Just, know, maybe we should add Goodbye, Earl to the end of the yeah, film, just because. Committing a murder yeah, of an abusive man. A thousand percent. That's one that should have made the soundtrack. Yeah. yeah. So, they kill Jimmy... They come back to Massachusetts. They decide, okay, let's. We've made a mistake. Let's bring him back to life. That doesn't work. She doesn't care about care if he comes back as dark and unnatural because he's already dark and unnatural. Yeah, I will say that one other. Let me find another note. That grimoire um, that they open, by the way, is absolutely stunning. I think absolutely about the, stunning. The design of that book all the time. Sorry. Some of the notes I put in here is I love it when Sally calls Jimmy a Dracula freak. Oh yeah. I love when she calls him Dracula Cowboy because I used to be in love with this guy who had big Dracula Cowboy vibes. And I mean, how could you not? It's, how could you not? It is like, oh my God. How could you not? He's definitely a Scorpio. Um, I'll tell you that. And then, so they try to bring him back to life. Mm-hmm. He starts... The cream scene is one of my favorite scenes. It's pretty scenes. funny. I, I think this is part of the reason, too, that, um, you know, Roger and Ebert, who I don't give a shit about, said that when okay side note when everyone mentions roger and ebert i mentioned the i I think of those two muppet characters the two old men (laughs) yeah that's who exact that's who i think roger and ebert are yeah that's like who they're modeled after okay (laughs) um 
<laughs> they either saw it first and modeled themselves after, or <laughs> who came first, the chicken or the egg? Um, yeah, so they, they said that it was really convoluted and couldn't tell if it was comedy or not. And I think it's because there's some really, really great comedic moments in this scene, but it's only possible because of the tension that's built and the fact that they are sisters. Mm-hmm. And if you ever grew up with a sibling that you got into shit with, even when you were in trouble, it is pretty funny, mm-hmm. you know? Like those little, her taking the whipped cream star and like licking it, putting yeah. it in her mouth and trying to figure out what to do next. And and just their whole, the dynamic of their relationship is very apparent in this scene. And I really yeah. like that. So they, they do the spell and Jimmy comes back to life, but he's being, he, he's like saying, I want you to be my wife. So it's a very Borat moment. Okay, I wrote the exact same thing in my notes. I literally, I, I literally wrote, I want you to be my wife. I was like, this is very Borat before Borat. I wonder often, is this the inspiration for Borat? Does it all come back to, practical, to 1998's Practical Magic? And I'm willing to say yes. I want you to be Rip my wife. wife. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. I'm, yeah. I'm so glad we wrote down the exact yeah, same no, note. No, it's, it's, it is hard to watch without doing the Borat voice. In fact, I did it last night. Yeah. My wife. So then Sally, because he's come back to, to life, he's now choking Jillian in a Borat voice. And so Sally <laughs> grabs a cast iron pan. Smacks him on top of the head, kills him for good. They bury him in the backyard. And they're... They dig that hole pretty, pretty deep. Yeah, and they're just like, okay, we're going to bury him. We're going to try to forget about it. Yeah, so they're on. So they're going on with their lives, and there's weird things that are happening. This is a little bit similar to the book where, you know, like I mentioned, the lilacs are growing. There's weird... Mm-hmm. The, the daughters are noticing. They're seeing a man outside. There's these weird things... The kind of a haunting that's happening. And yeah, the, the little girls are picking up on things. Something has happened, but they don't know what. And, the, you know, Sally and Jillian are both just trying to, like, move on. But mm-hmm. Jillian is clearly losing her shit. She has obviously been impacted by this, as Sally has, but... Yeah. And the aunts, I think, also know something is going on. Mm-hmm. So they lure... Um, Jillian and Sally downstairs one night for midnight margaritas. Mm. I don't think that they lured them. I I think that Jimmy did it. I that's true. That's true. I and the answer being worked through the spirit of Jimmy because it's his bottle of tequila. It's his that bottle they're of tequila, and there is a point where they're singing. Um, they're actually re-singing to the tune of uh, um, "You're Always, always on mm-hmm. My Mind," which is how they know that. That Jimmy is haunting them, and it's and during the scene that where they're getting on the porch. that they're getting drunk, they're mm-hmm. saying things that they can't believe that they're saying. So they'll. Do you want to know fun? I don't know why we say. Do you want to know a fun fact? I, I do want to know. I know do you want to hear it. I'm on a microphone. If you didn't want to hear it. anyway, um, so <laughs> Nicole Kidman actually brought cheap tequila, and everyone on set, not just the actors are tipsy for that, except for the director of photography. Everyone took shots. I love that. During that scene, and they did that scene a couple of times. And Stalker Channing even talked about this, and she was like, yeah, I mean, it was getting hard towards the end to finish up the shots. But I have to say that scene comes across pretty sincere. Yeah. And the song we're talking about is Coconut by Henry Nielsen, and we'll play it in a second. 
Um, but it's, you know, Jillian wakes Sally up. They say the aunts are making midnight margaritas. They have a party. And I would just say that, you know, another piece of advice, you know, along with our play this song when you're in the car, get a group of girlfriends together and have midnight margaritas. Have midnight margaritas and watch this film. Yes. A hundred percent would recommend. So up next is Coconuts by Harry Nielsen. I am mute and toe of frog, full of bat, tongue of dog. Adder's fork and blind worms sting. Barbados lime is just the thing. Fragged salt like a sailor's snubble. Flip the switch and let the cauldron bubble. <laughs> How
that was uh, Coconuts by Harry Nilsson. He is credited as the American Beetle. Which is weird, yeah. Um, I get he was like just. I didn't read too much about him because I was so fascinated with Nick Drake, to be honest. But like he was friends with John Lennon and also um, the Beatle, who later became a PBS train conductor. He's my favorite Beatle, Ringo Starr. I think That's my mom's Ringo Starr is also my mom's favorite being Beatle. He's Marge Simpson's favorite Beatle too. There's like an episode where she just paints portraits of Ringo Starr. I've always liked Ringo Starr. He seems like a nice man, and as you know, I, I love. <laughs> Nice man. I love a nice man. I love a nice man. I love a nice man. But I also love a bed boy. There's a reason. You know, it's so funny because I think that uh, the three main men of this film are all dating archetypes that I strive for. Yeah. Which is upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. (laughs) So the ants are like, okay, so you, you need to clean up your own mess. Yeah, they excuse themselves from the situation. They take a um, a string off of the, the gallow that Maria didn't die from, and then she ties it around the two young girls, gives them a message for Jillian and Sally, tells them to clean up their own mess, and they leave. Yeah, and that's when and a cowboy comes into town. Uh-huh. And who rides in but Aiden Quinn? Um... So good. So good. That's played by Gary Holt. Oh, wait, no, that's his character in this is Gary Holt. Um, I love Aiden Quinn. I know you don't like him that much I in this don't... movie, but he is so fine. He's so fine. In Desperately Seeking Susan, he's, like, so hot. He has, like, a weird, I don't know, Jim sure. Strummer thing going on that's very hot. And in Benny and June... He's so good in that also. I take your word for it. And I do love his voice. I love... Oh, so, well, so that's a part of it, too, is, like, I'm very much a voice person, um, which you can't tell. <laughs> I have a terrible voice, but, like, there's just something... It's at a, a, a low octave that I just really enjoy. He he has... He's got syrup vocals. You know what I mean? It's just heavy, and I like yeah. him. I like him. I can see that. Um, so he comes into town, he's a sheriff, he's questioning about where is Jimmy, so then that's where, um, Sally, and really kind of, like, the climax of the movie is kind of around him. I have a shitty thing to say. No, go ahead. When he is telling them about the previous murder that Jimmy is responsible for, and they show that picture of that woman, I think that what you are supposed to feel is that... There is a, a previous, I mean, it's it's obvious that what they're trying to show is that there is a, a, a pattern of behavior of killing women and what happens because they talk about that girl is branded previously in the car. He tries to brand Jillian. Um, but when they show that picture of her, I would really like to know who that is because mm-hmm. it does look like it is a very old picture for one. Um, it, it looks like it's from an old case file and I have to say, I'm just like, how did he, what, it just doesn't make sense. I don't know. It's not putting together. Well, it's just like, man, he handed, he landed Nicole Kidman. Sandra Bullock. No, Nicole Kidman. Oh, you're talking talking about about Jimmy. Jimmy. Okay. The woman that he was with previously. 
She's very plain looking. I know that that's not very nice. She was murdered. Clearly <laughs> that photo is taken of her in high school or something. But I just am like, you're supposed to be showing like a a train. But like, I don't know. She's, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's weird. But what's his character's name? Gary? Sheriff Gary? It's not Tucson. Sheriff Gary. <laughs> Sheriff Holt. Sheriff Holt. It's Gary Holt. <laughs> Sheriff Gary. Sheriff Gary. Sheriff Gary for Um, So he's asking around town. He's learning more about the Owens being witches. He's con- Everyone is saying you know, cook a placenta. Yeah. The, all of the aunts are ancient. The, yeah, so there's a lot of good stuff going on in the movie at this point. Um, there's a scene where, because um, our next song isn't until Crystal. And Crystal's the last. Is last. So do we want to fill in a little bit about the plot points that happened between then? So basically... Well, I don't want to give away too much of the film. Yeah. I do want to erase that part about that woman being plain. She doesn't deserve to be murdered even though she's plain. I'm sorry I said that. <laughs> but Gary... Sheriff Gary... <laughs> Sheriff Gary! Sheriff Gary comes into town. Uh-huh. Um, he's asking questions... Uh-huh. Um, Sally can't lie to him Sally can't lie she ends up confessing at the same time Jillian becomes possessed Mm -hmm. then they call the phone tree Jillian's like watch out for your husband's lady well that's before the phone tree yeah she goes to that pizza meeting yeah there's a, there's a lot of different community dynamics that happen and dynamics between the women in that town and how how they're perceived as witches and um the inherit sexuality that goes with certain things it, it's it's pretty interesting and then when she does call on the phone tree how all those women show up and and are a part of the coven to ban him that's very sweet yeah and and you definitely i will say this film has multiple uh character art growths and i think that that is very cool yeah, I will say that I wrote in my notes, I love the idea of women uniting over a shitbag abuser, the phone tree scene. It gives me a good vibe, Earl vibes. Okay, so not only that, but I really love whenever they're all in the kitchen and they're talking about it. And there's clearly at least three women who are, um, they've never been in the house. They have a, a, a morbid type curiosity of it and, and wouldn't normally want to be there but once they are there they all reunite over men being terrible because <laughs> yeah. that one lady's like you think that work on my ex-husband and they you know and they just all are like i've been messed up over a man too yeah i think that's really sweet this just genuine understanding that happens over the situation yeah. instead and like all that judgment drops all of a sudden yeah once they're there once once they're human to them mm-hmm. and of course there's some great like little comedic elements that happen with the frogs and the girls are so sweet in that mm-hmm. so they eventually they ban jimmy's spirit mm-hmm. the sheriff gary goes back to tucson um but he's called back well he he writes a letter basically saying that they have that the state of Arizona has decided that his death was an accident. They drop the case. They drop the case. They recognize that a murderer is dead and they have moved on. He sends the ring as evidence, which I got to say, even as a kid, I was like, can you do that? That doesn't seem cool. And also <laughs> I wouldn't want that ring. He tried to burn you with it. It's not. It's no good. Not a, 
Not a not a good memory. A no good um, ring. Yeah. So our next song on the soundtrack is just a total and complete banger. Um, it is it's Crystal. It's a good way to close out the soundtrack. It's a good way to close out the soundtrack. It's Crystal by Stevie Nicks. Um, let's give it a listen.
So once again, that was Crystal by Stevie Nicks. So this song actually plays twice during the movie. Mm -hmm. She Um, wrote it for the movie. Oh, really? Uh I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. So the outro of the song plays when 11-year-old Sally is making her um, love spell to the moon, her amas veritas, and then it is reprised and plays from the start when Sally lets the leaf go, which brings Sheriff Gary back to her near the end of the film. Lindsay Buckingham is lead on the vocals for that. Huh. Oh, and then Stevie Nicks recorded Crystal for a third time in 1998, singing the lead vocals for the track for The Practical Magic. So she didn't originally write it for this, but she re-recorded it for this film. Yeah. So I apologize. Um, It's a great song. Um, So Sally lets the leaf go. She says... You know, I'll fall in love again. I'm not afraid to fall in love again. And the sheriff, Gary, <laughs> comes back to her. Um, and that's, and then, you know, it's really a funny description. It's really kind of a happily ever after. Yeah. Yeah. You Jillian know? is at home with the aunts, kind of settled in a little bit more. She's not. Um, as much as a wanderer for for the time being, of course. Yeah. Um, he comes back, and then you get this really really great Halloween scene that's clearly in the future where mm-hmm. he's integrated into the life. He's a dad to the two girls. I mean, there there's a part where he picks up. Um, I can't remember which daughter it is, but he's picking her up. Antonia, the I younger think one. So he's picking up Antonia and kissing her on the cheek and telling mm-hmm. her what a good job she did. And they and the whole neighborhood's out to see them when they jump off of the yeah. houses with umbrellas. It's a very sweet redemption moment, I think. Mm-hmm. Even though they didn't need redemption whatsoever. Um, yeah. If anybody did the townsfolk. But, but it's a happy ending. But it's a happy ending. And this in general to me is is one of those movies that I don't know, man, like it ends on a good note. It does. It's a it's a good I love this movie. I think it's a good movie. I love this movie. Our last two tracks on the soundtrack are both by the composer of the score, Alan Silvestri. Oh, Um, yeah. The first one we'll play is Practical Magic, um, which will be followed by Amos Veritas. Thank you. 
So that's the Practical Magic soundtrack. Well, it is and it isn't. So because... Do tell. <laughs> Do tell. So, you know, I was talking about that, that first draft. The first draft is, is pretty dark. And when it went in for tests, um, for screening tests, uh, the soundtrack was actually rejected. And, quote, too European sounding, which I don't really know... I don't really get that vibe, but anyway, you've listened to that that version, which is done by Alan um, Silvestri, who also did the soundtracks for like, The Parent Trap and Stuart Little, which I think is like very Wait, fitting. Stuart Little Stuart and Little. Parent Trap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were two of the films that like caught my eye that he'd worked on. I um, love, I loved Parent Trap. So, so you get you get a vibe of that, right? And you and I think that vibe comes through on the music. It's very nineties. The person who originally did it was Michael uh, Newman's. I think is how you say his name. Anyway, his was the two European sound one that was rejected. And I'm going to just play you um, one part off of that. And that's the, the coven part.
so different. And so, I don't know if it's just that I'm used to the original, to the one that was used in production, but I don't feel like I like this one. Okay, so uh, I've got a lot of thoughts on this. Uh, again, that was a clip from Michael Nealman's rejected soundtrack um, for Practical Magic, which actually, they had rejected it so close to that to the release of the film that a batch made it out, and then they had to re-release the soundtrack after. Oh, wow. So there is like a batch of bootleg. What's I mean, it's not bootleg because it was real, but, you know, what's considered bootleg um, soundtracks that got out, which are, I'm sure, valuable. Um, totally different vibe, obviously. Totally. And don't you kind of get, uh, you, you know what? <laughs> Silvestri's soundtrack kind of reminds me of is Beethoven, the, hmm. the the movie with the dog. Oh, <laughs> not not Amadeus. No, not, not, not Amadeus. Wait, no, no, I'm talking about the Amadeus Mozart. Oh yeah, Amadeus is Mozart. Your Amadeus is Mozart because it's there's also the film Amadeus, which is about Mozart's life. Yeah. Um. So I'm referring to the dog movie because it has those big, na 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 na. You know, like it's the composure whimsical. is very whimsical. It's very upbeat. Um, and the tonality is very different. So then you hear Michael, uh, not Michael's, yeah, then you hear Michael's version, and you can see that that was going to be a different film. For some reason, Michael's version, just the little clip that we listened to just now, gave me kind of Harry Potter vibes. Okay, so it's funny that you say that. When he comments about this, um, which maybe I'm reading into this too much, uh, but it seems, <laughs> seems like he was a little bit vexed about it, uh, because he says he thinks it was one of the best soundtracks he had ever made for a project he didn't care about. Which huh. I thought was a little snotty of a comment. <laughs> but I, I thought that was really interesting. Um, what's cool is a portion of this soundtrack does get reused again in one of my favorite movies. So later in 1999, he works on the soundtrack for Ravenous, which Ooh, is one of my you love that movie. You I love that, that movie. Before. Um, I think that it's a very uh, underrated horror film. It's got Guy Pierce in it. It's got David Arquette in it. It's got Robert Carlyle in it. I mean, it's star-studded cast. Yeah. Star-studded cast. There's even more stars in it, but we won't talk about that. Anyway, I just thought that was really interesting and... and I can see the tonality between those two films and how that would happen. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, any last thoughts on Practical Magic? Um, five out of five flushes. Five out of five. Yeah, I love this film. I think it's great. I think it is one of those films that if you got to see this growing up on TV or cable... It was influential. It made an impact. It made an impact. I think the soundtrack has got a lot of bangers on it. Yeah. It's some a, filler, but there's a lot of bangers. It's a fun soundtrack. It's a to fun soundtrack. To. Um, it's a fun movie. Oh, yeah, those are like my major closing thoughts. I, I have a book on the architects who built the house. I just think it's a stunning and fascinating film. I love it. that's practical magic that's practical magic thanks so much for tuning in this week Uh, we got a good lineup coming up of some uh, films we're going to be working on some shows Mm -hmm. Um, Garden State 
Attack the Block and The Green Room are three films we have coming up. Mm-hmm. They're going to be making appearances, some very different soundtracks uh, for sure. Um, definitely shows some very different uh, acting range as well. Yeah, thanks for again for listening, for tuning in. Thank you to Crater Radio. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you to Liminal um, Coffee Shop and Flagstaff for letting us uh, record our little show <laughs> in the back room. And so we'll close out the podcast today, or sorry, we'll close out the show today, same way that Sally closes out the film. And we'll remind you to always throw salt over your left shoulder, mm-hmm. keep rosemary by your garden gate. Plant lavender for luck and fall in love whenever you can. That's practical magic. That's practical magic. Yeah. All right. It's like 1030. We got to go home. We got to go home. We got to go home. Bye. Like, ah. This kid.